Hello, this is Kevin McMullen, Senior Pastor of Independence Christian Center. Thanks for joining us as we break the bread of life today. Our prayer is that your faith in our Lord Jesus Christ is strengthened by this word. God bless you. Uh, some of the things I say to start with, especially this morning, uh, may be difficult to some people. And for that, I do not apologize. That's kind of our job to get up here and challenge you. If I just tell you what you want to hear, then why are you coming? Right? Uh, but before we get too serious, a young accountant straight out of college applies for a job. It's in the Denver area, and he'd seen it advertised online. It's a small startup company, and he has an accounting degree, and they are looking for an accountant. So he goes in and, and applies for the job. He does an interview. And the, the owner of the, the startup company says, I need someone with an accounting degree. Mainly, I'm looking for someone to do my worrying for me. <laughs> what do you mean? Asked the accountant. The business owner responds, I have lots of things to worry about, but I want someone else to worry about money matters for me. Okay, says the accountant. What is the starting pay for this job? I will start you out at $150,000 a year. $150,000 a year? How much can a small business like this, how can you afford to pay so much? Said the surprised accountant. That, says the business owner, will be your first worry. <laughs> All right. Yeah. So this morning I want to talk about an issue. I recently spoke with the youth along these lines as well. Um, our particular group right now, unlike all the combinations of kids that we've had in the past, they seem to have a fascination with sin. And I don't say that to mean that like, they're obsessed with it and they're enjoying it and, and they're focused on it, uh, but they have real concerns. They have questions, which I'm happy that they have questions about. I'm happy that these thoughts are even entering their minds. Um, but there have also been concerns about forgiveness and eternal security. And well, once again, I'm happy that they have the maturity to be thinking about these things. I don't want any Christian to have to worry about their eternal security. Uh, we will get there. As a people, certainly in America, but I believe probably in most of the Western world, the church, we have lost our fear of God. If we think of our relationship with God, our respect for God, and our fear for God on a continuum. And by continuum, I just told you all I had a SWAT call out, so anyone that doesn't know, yes, I'm a cop. Um, Carl told me that I can move as long as I move and then stay for a minute so that I can enjoy my newfound location. So I'm going to stay right here for a moment. We, we have what's called the use of force continuum, whereas an officer, when I encounter a suspect, I can, can meet the level of resistance that he or she is, is meeting me with um, so that I can counter that. So if, if somebody pulls a gun on me, I don't have to try and talk them out of hurting me with the gun and then try and pepper spray them and do this and that and this and that. If, if we think of it as a ladder where just me showing up as an officer in uniform, uh, that's a presence. That's a show of force. It makes some people very nervous. And then we, we talk to people. We can use empty hand controls, just, just controlling somebody. We can strike them. Um, we have pepper spray, tasers, batons, beanbag rounds, which if you don't know what a beanbag round is, think of a really hard, filled, tiny little sock, like a Christmas stocking filled with sand. And you shoot it out of a gun. Um, it's not supposed to be lethal, but it sure does leave a bruise. Uh, all the way up to, to using lethal force. And as an officer, we are allowed to enter that ladder 
wherever the appropriate level is. Like I said, if somebody's presenting a deadly force threat to me, I don't have to start trying to talk them out of it first because there's probably not time for that. On the other hand, if they just talk back to me, I can't just draw my gun out and say, you're not going to say that to me, buddy. Right? We have to enter into the appropriate level. If we think of the respect that, that, that we, the respect and fear that we can have for God, there is a continuum, and the entire continuum is not acceptable. Understand that. But there are people who have no respect and no fear for God, and there are people who have an unhealthy fear for God. And I, I want to make sure that we are walking in a healthy place where we should be. We should be afraid of God, but but because of what the Word says, not because we think He's going to smite us if we sneeze wrong. Moving, Carl. I will not notify him every time. Uh, you know, Adam in the garden, initially, he did not have any fear of God as far as we can tell. But he didn't need to have a fear of God in, in the way that we think of it. They had a, a fellowship and a communion unlike anything that we in our natural senses can imagine. Because God came to the garden and walked with him every day. Um, they had a, a very different relationship. So he, he didn't need to have a fear of God because there wasn't sin. There wasn't that, that broken fellowship that we experience now. Um, but when he did commit the first sin, deep dread and fear fell on Adam and Eve. So much so that they went and they hid from God. Hide and seek champion of the, of the universe. I don't know what you think is going to happen, but they, you know. They did what came natural. They hid. And they realized they were naked. They realized that they were inadequate when they were hiding. People see the God of the Old Testament as harsh, as brutal, and as unforgiving. And if you have an accurate understanding of Scripture, you know that that is not an accurate understanding of God. Uh, God sought Adam and Eve out. They messed up. And God sought them out knowing that they messed up. He could have snapped his fingers and said, Mulligan. Mulligan is in golf when you, you mess up and you put a new ball down and say, I'm going to do that again. Uh, start over. God could have started over right then and there with Adam and Eve. He knew everything that was going to come from that, and yet he still chose to stick with his original plan. He's not harsh and unforgiving. Um, he does have standards, but he loves us. And we can see that the way that he loved his creation even then. Moving through the first few chapters of Genesis, and i got to apologize now with a short notice. Um, I was not able to get uh, Susan a scripture list, so if you brought a Bible, you can open it up. I'm going to try and give her time to get those going, and for those watching at home, uh, good luck. Follow along. I'm, not, I'm trying not to go too fast here. The Chiefs game doesn't start until, what, 3 or 3.30, so we should be... Plus, there's no service tonight, so I can do, like, double duty. The first few chapters of Genesis, up until Genesis chapter 6, it seems that any overall fear or respect of God, it just wanes. Um, it, it decreases up until the time of Noah. Genesis chapter 6, verse 5 says that God saw that wickedness of man was great on the earth. Uh, Susan did ask that I give her any Old Testament scriptures that I was going to use, and I just realized I didn't give her the very first one. So she doesn't have that one. She does have two of them coming up. God saw that wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. And we know what God did with the earth at that point. He did wipe everything out, except Noah, his wife, his sons and their wives, and, and the animals that he was commanded to take aboard the ark. It was the ultimate IT solution. Have you tried turning it off and back on again? 
God effectively turned it off and back on again. And it, it sort of did kind of fix things for a while, right? But it wasn't the ultimate fix. We have the case with the Israelites who, after coming out of Egypt, were so fearful of God that they refused to speak with him. It was God's original plan that he would speak to his people directly. And the first time they heard it, they screamed and cried, it's thunder, we're terrified, he's going to kill us. And they wanted an intermediary. They wanted Moses to go before God. And that's understandable. If, if you don't know God, which they did not, they might have known of him, but they had no relationship with him. They've been in bondage for all those years. Uh, you see the presence of God coming on the mountain as a fire and you hear the thundering voice, that would be terrifying. And very interesting, I'm not going to sit here and tell you that this is definitely it, but did you know that there's a mountain in northwestern Saudi Arabia where the top looks like it has been burned? And the government has fenced most of that area off so that people cannot get in there, either maybe to investigate or to mess things up. But it's just, it's very fascinating that the, the stories that we read about in Scripture, there is archaeological and geological evidence that these things happened. Not that we need it, to, to, we, we trust it by faith, but you can go there and see this stuff. And they saw it real time. They saw the presence of God like a fire on the mountain. It was not God's desire to have that separation. God's desire was to have communion and fellowship, just like he did with Adam and Eve before they sinned. Uh, not going through Moses, not going through a priest or a prophet or a king. He wanted one-on-one, -on -one, but that is not what the people wanted. Uh, they were incredibly fearful of God. Today, there is almost no hint of that fear at all. Um, and yes, we, we call God Abba, our Father, but on the whole, the Western church has tr taken to treating God the same way that a spoiled teenager would treat their mother's third husband. Like, not even stepdad number one or stepdad number two. This is just, I don't even care about this guy. He, yeah, he's in my life, but I don't respect him. And that's how, how we've taken to treating God on the whole. The same Jesus that we trust as our Lord and Savior today is the same Jesus that John records for us in John chapter 18. We turn to John chapter 18 if you have your Bible. I didn't even cheat. I didn't even put markers in mine. As long as I don't have to go to Thessalonians, it's okay. Because every time I look for Thessalonians, they move it. <laughs> John chapter 18 verse 5. This is where they are arresting Jesus in, in, in the garden when Judas had betrayed him. It said, They answered him, Jesus, the Nazarene, he said to them, I am he. And Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing with them. So when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. These soldiers had no respect for God. These soldiers had no fear of God. Yet when he spoke, they fell to the ground, unable to stand. That's the same Jesus that we claim today. But where is that awe? Where is that fear? Where is that respect? He is the great I am. He was the great I am, and he is still the great I am. And any Jew would have seen that, that reference, I am, as to when God spoke to Moses, when Moses asked, who do I tell them you are? God said, I am. Uh, it's a very interesting study. If you go through John, there are multiple what they call I am statements where Jesus used those words, I am, I am, I am. The modern church has put God into their own mold. The Israelites, while Moses was on the mountain, made a golden calf. And they said, this is our God. 
Today, we've said, this is our God, and we've made him how we want him to be, how we think he should be, and not how he truly is. Paul, over and over again through the New Testament, cautioned against using grace as a license to sin. Yet so many Christians today have taken this attitude, I'm 007, Christian, saved Christian, I have a license to sin. That's, that's what we've, we've done. Paul said grace is not a license, it's not an excuse, it's not a reason to sin. But so much of the church has said sin doesn't exist. Hell doesn't exist. If sin doesn't exist and hell doesn't exist, then why do we need a Savior? I, if there's not a devil, why do we need one? Why do we need a Savior? At one point when I was in high school, um, and we had to do the, the stuff with the, the counselors would come into the, the rooms and talk about what do you want to do when you grow up type of thing, where do you want to go to school, trying to help you start guiding your, your, your future. Much like most kids that age, I didn't have any definite idea. One of the things that I entertained was a history teacher because I've always liked history. And now in this particular position, I find church history very interesting. And if you read accounts from the late 1800s and early 1900s, there was a time when people literally trembled in church. A time when people were ashamed of their sin. A time when people had a fear of God. I read an account recently where there was a particular church that most times when the pastor would walk up to the pulpit, he hadn't even said a word yet. People would start trembling. Unbelievers would start dropping to their knees in repentance because the presence of God was so heavy. Where's that? Another account, a church was having problems repeatedly because as the pastor spoke, it was a, uh, I don't remember if it was a mining town or what it was, but it was one of those towns where you have a, a high percentage of kind of rough and tough guys. And they would come into the service, unbelievers, and they would sit on the back row as you like to do when you're not a member of a church and you don't want to be seen. And the pastor would teach on repentance and sin and, and the, the hellfire and damnation that we don't like to hear. And I'm not saying we need to hear that all the time. But the men would sit back there so nervous and so trembling that they would hold hymnals in their hands and they kept ripping the hymnals up. Right? Not on purpose, just that nervous, like, you know, the fear of God. Where is that? Please, we don't have hymnals. Don't tear anything up. I'm not suggesting that either. Not every service or most services need hellfire and brimstone. We don't necessarily need that. But we need a healthy fear of God. The world needs repentance. Uh, Jesus took care of sin on the cross. Absolutely. But if the church pretends that sin does not exist, then we don't have a need for a Savior, believer or unbeliever, to repent. Right? There is sin. So what is sin? Sin is an offense against religious or moral law. Sin has been defined before as missing the mark. Sin has been defined as anything less than God's will. Sin is any violation of God's law and His instructions. Sin can be something as major as, as murder or robbing quick trip. It can be something as minor as being rude to a stranger you've never met before because we're told to treat everyone with love. You quip off at the, 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 the one of two checker, checkers at Walmart? Are you walking in love? If you can find two. One of those is in sporting goods and the other one's up front. As I've already said, the first sin was committed in the, in the Garden of Eden when Eve took the fruit that God had said. They could not eat, and she ate it, and she gave it to Adam. And I think Adam was probably standing right there when it happened. Um, and we understand that, that Satan tricked Eve because Satan twisted 
the words of God. God told him, don't eat. Satan said, didn't God say you couldn't touch it? Well, he, they could touch it all day long. They could pick it and they could throw it as a football. I'm not suggesting they did that, but understand that the, the command was, do not eat from the fruit. Um, and the moment they ate from it, their eyes were opened. They realized their shame. They realized they were naked. And Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, so death spread to all men, because all sinned. Like, that's a great deal. They messed up, and we get credit for their mess up. I don't like that, but that, it, that is the truth. We're born into a condition of sin because of that original sin. You don't have to do anything wrong. You were born that way. People are saying that in the world, and that's not true. But this, this is true. Until the law was... For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness or offense of Adam, who was a type of who was to come. So before Adam and Eve sinned, I said it, they had regular fellowship with God. God walked in the garden with them on a daily basis. Uh, I believe this was, was Jesus pre-incarnate, uh, because the Bible says that no man has seen the Father. Well, Adam was a man, so that tells me he didn't see the Father either. But there was a, a bodily presence there that they saw, that they were able to, to speak to and hear from. But once they sinned, they became aware that they were naked. Discovery Channel came out with the show Naked and Afraid. Adam and Eve came up with it way sooner. And their sin caused separation from them and God. God kicked them out of the garden and mankind from the garden forever. Um, there was no longer regular fellowship. And in Genesis chapter 6, we have God saying, I will no longer strive with man for an unlimited amount of time type of deal. Adam and Eve went from a state of perfection to a fallen sinful state. And they passed that fallen sinful state onto you and me. And we pass it on to our kids, and they will pass it on to their kids until the end of time. That's a, a matter of the flesh. We are born with a sinful nature. No one had to teach you how to sin. No one had to teach me how to sin. I figured out how to lie all on my own. People figure out how to steal all, all on their own. Um, yes, we sometimes learn those behaviors from seeing people, but I guarantee you, if you don't see it, you'll still figure it out. Not too hard. We innately know how to lie, steal, and manipulate from a very early age comes natural. My son, uh, I don't recall this, but my wife recalls this. It, being an only child, he did not have brothers and sisters on which to blame things. So at one point, apparently, our dog wrote our, son, our son's name on the door with a green crown. <laughs> very, very talented dog. I won't tell any other stories because they would be embarrassing, but he learned how at a very early age to blame things on someone else, just like Adam. It was the woman you gave me. Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death. That started a literal physical death and decay along with the spiritual death that was instantaneous. The moment they went from, from pre-sin to post-sin, they went from a loving relationship to God to where they were hiding and afraid. Uh, they went from communion with God to separation from God. And that's the, the circumstance that we are born into, is a separation from God. Every person, regardless of how good they are, is separated from God until they make a decision to receive Jesus as their Lord and Savior. They went from perfect health to one in which every cell of their body began to die slowly. And that is a very uh, uplifting thought. 
the moment you are born, you start the process of dying. I'm dying right now, and, and you're all dying right now, um, our physical bodies. The good news is that there is going to be a renewed body, uh, and a new heaven, and a new earth, and all that stuff. But, but thanks to what, what happened in the beginning, this is what we have to deal with right now. And, and through the, the sozo, the salvation that we have through what Jesus did, we have access to healing and divine health and things. I realize that. But even still, He didn't promise that we're going to live forever. I don't think anyone has that realistic expectation. Uh, the, as uh, I believe it was John wrote when, when it was almost time for Jesus to ascend and Jesus and Peter are talking. Uh, and they go through the, the three repetitions of, Peter, do you love me? Take care of my sheep. And Peter says, what about this guy? Well, what if I want him to stick around till, till I come back? And some people think, well, that means John's going to live forever. John didn't say that. Jesus didn't say that. No one is going to live forever. We're in a process of decay and dying. Thanks to sin. God allowed for that process that Adam and Eve started to continue for a couple thousand years until He gave the law to Moses. And Moses received the law, the Ten Commandments, along with all the, the ceremonial law, all those fun things that we no longer have to obey, thank God. But it was a covenant. And once again, people have this understanding, an incorrect understanding, that God is harsh and, and mean and, and rough and, and unjust. Uh, but the people agreed to follow that, that law. If we can turn to Exodus chapter 19, this is one of the verses I actually did give Susan. Exodus, by the way, a few, few months ago I told you on a Sunday night that Leviticus is the second book of the Bible. As you are probably seeing right now, Exodus is the second book and Leviticus is in fact the third book. My father pointed that out to me as soon as I stepped off the platform by text message. Exodus chapter 24, verses 1 through 3. Exodus 24, 1 through 3 says, Then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, the seventy of the elders of Israel, and you shall worship at a distance. Moses alone, however, shall come near to the Lord, but they shall not come near, nor shall the people come up with him. Then Moses came and recounted to the people all the words of the Lord and all the ordinances. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which the Lord has spoken, we will do. God didn't force Israel into anything. They agreed to it. They said, Yep, we hear what you say, we'll do it. And then we're going to jump ahead to Exodus chapter 24, which for me, ah, I just read it backwards. It's okay. They say the same thing basically in uh, Exodus chapter 19, 19, 4 through 8. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. So Moses came and called the sons of Israel, uh, sons called the elders of the people, and set before them all the words which the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. It was a covenant. It was a two-way covenant. It was a conditional covenant. God says, I will do this if you do this. If you do this, then I will do this. Right? And the people willingly agreed in one accord. God's not harsh. God was fulfilling His end of the agreement that the people made with Him. 
right? And he made those rules to separate them from the, the people around them, to show that they were his own peculiar people. They were to be different, just as we are to be different today. But even before the law, the promise was made to Abraham to bless him and make him a father of many nations. And a lot of people believe that the seed that that refers to in the blessing of Abraham was to Isaac. No, the seed was Jesus. That's to whom the promise belongs. The seed was through Isaac, yes, through that lineage, not Ishmael, but Isaac. But the seed was Jesus. Moses' covenant was conditional. Abraham's covenant was unconditional. Abraham didn't have to do anything except exist to receive the bargain, right? And that covenant with Abraham was not done away with. The law was fulfilled by Jesus, but the covenant of Abraham is still in effect, not only to the Jewish nation, but to believers, because we get to partake of that. In Galatians, Paul writes, uh, Galatians chapter 3, verse 19, I've got to remember Susan doesn't have these, I'll give her time, and I'll find it myself. Galatians chapter 3. They moved this one on me too. Chapter 3, verse 19. Why the law then? It was added because of transgressions, that is sins. Having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. Once again, that seed referring to the promise to Abraham, the seed being Jesus. The law was a temporary solution, only meant to be a placeholder until the seed, Jesus, came. No one was able to fulfill the law, and the Bible says we know all have sinned and all have fallen short. It also says there is no one good, no, not one. We think, well, they're a good person. I'm a good person. Well, that's human standards. We're judging ourselves by ourselves. I could say I'm a pretty tall guy. If you're watching on camera, maybe you could be fooled by that. But if you're in the room here, you know I'm about five foot seven. Um, I tell my wife I'm less than average. It's true. I'm not a tall guy. But if I just want to compare myself by myself, I can say I'm tall all day long. I can say I'm good all day long. It doesn't make it true. Right? How good is my goodness compared to someone else's? Ultimately, no one's goodness is good enough. No one's. A few verses later, Galatians chapter 3, verse 24, Paul writes, Therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ, so that we may be justified by faith. The law was not meant to save anybody. Not a single person was ever saved because they kept the law. All the people that strived in the Old Testament to do so weren't saved because they kept the law. I'm not saying they weren't saved. I'm saying they weren't saved because they kept the law. Hebrews chapter 11 tells us all the heroes we think of a faith were saved because of faith. Not because of what they, what they did, but because of who their faith was in. The purpose of the law was to identify our sinfulness. It gave us concrete boundaries of right from wrong. And it showed us just how twisted we are without God. All of us are warped. So we're born that way. If we could find 1 Timothy Chapter 2, verse 5. They did not move Timothy on me, but it just so happens to be right by Thessalonians this time. 1 Timothy, 
chapter 2, verse 5. There is one God and one mediator also between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Verse 6 says, Who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. Once again, referring to the law was a placeholder until the proper time for Jesus to come. A mediator is someone who goes between two parties in a dispute and works things out. Most of the time, when you sign an agreement and you don't read the fine little print, you are signing away your right to sue someone and you're agreeing to mediation. You are agreeing to let a third party come in and solve any disputes you may have over financial matters and such. Mediator. The original plan was not for us to have a mediator. There was no mediator when God was there in the garden with Adam and Eve. Um, then the people, later on, the Israelites wanted a mediator. Nope, we're scared, Moses, you talk for us. Uh, now Jesus is the mediator, but the cool thing is that besides being the mediator between us and the Father, Jesus himself is God. We can't wrap our minds around all this stuff, but now we, while we do have a mediator, it's clearly from Scripture, we don't have a mediator all at the same time because we get to talk directly to God. It's kind of cool. Uh, kind of cool. It is cool. He is the only mediator, and He has worked all things out when He died on the cross on our behalf. We were born into a sinful condition, and we have continued in a sinful condition. The punishment for sin is death. That's what we deserve. We deserve to be killed for breaking God's laws. That's what the law prescribes. Stealing, hating, lying, not loving, not honoring. How many are guilty of any of those? All of those. Of course, you know that it's said that if you break the law in one part, you've broken the whole law. That's not an encouragement to say if you've lied, you might as well go commit murder too. But as, a, as I try and tell the kids, we, we like to make differentiations between sin. We like to say one sin is worse than the other. Some churches even go so far as to put names on it. We have mortal sins and venial sins. And if you, if you commit a mortal sin and you, you don't get forgiveness, you'll, you'll go to hell. And if you commit a venial sin, it's not such a bad, bad deal. It's okay. But that's not how God views sin. Sin is sin. On our plane of existence, absolutely. If, if I'm rude to the checkout person at Walmart, um, I've committed a sin. I should apologize, I should ask for forgiveness, etc. Um, but the consequences of that are not nearly so severe as if I go rob Quick Trip. I understand that. But in God's eyes, guilt is guilt. Right. He doesn't make that distinction. He is a holy God, He is a perfect God, and that's what He demands um, is, is a, a perfect grade. Thankfully, Jesus got the perfect grade for us, so we don't have to do it on our own because we cannot. Jesus took our place on the cross. He died and He took every one of our sins, past, present, and future. And some people have a hard time understanding how they can be saved and that Jesus could also take care of their future sins. But if Jesus can't take care of your future sins, then you have a problem because He died 2,000 years ago. Every sin of yours that He took care of was future. Right. Only He could do it. Uh, Galatians 2.21 Hopefully you didn't close your Bible. Galatians 2.21, just a few verses prior. Oh, we're in Timothy. Back to the left. 2.21, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, 
then Christ died needlessly. If you can make it to heaven because you can follow all the laws, all the rules, then Jesus didn't need to come. If you can make it to heaven because you're a good person, or a better person than I am, or this or that, Jesus didn't need to come. If Muhammad can save you, if Buddha can save you, if any combination of anything you can think of can save you, then Jesus did not need to come. But nothing else can do it except Him. Amen. If we could avoid sin and save ourselves, Jesus died in vain. But it is impossible. Let's move to Galatians 3, 13 and 14. Galatians 3, 13 and 14. It says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, in order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. There we go. The promise of Abraham that was unconditional is now put on you, as I said earlier, because you are a believer in Christ. You get it through faith. That's good news. Amen. So today, every single person has a choice. We can choose to submit to God. We can accept Jesus as our Savior. Or we can do any other thing that we can think of. And any other thing is a rejection of Jesus. Plain and simple. I didn't reject Jesus. I never said anything about Jesus. By not accepting Him, it's a rejection. It's, it's, it's I know... We can't have binary things today. We can't have things that are either yes or no. We can't have things that are either male or female, but it's yes or no. Yes to Jesus or no to Jesus. There's no middle ground. I should be careful. If we get kicked off YouTube, I don't want it to be my fault. <laughs> Romans chapter 6, verse 16. Romans 6, verse 16. If you're actually going through a Bible, it's a little bit to the left again. I, I, when I apologized to Susan about not having a list of scriptures for her to present, I said, how did we ever survive before projectors? Of course we did, but then we get used to things and spoiled by things. But it's good to see it with our own eyes. And I'm all about electronics. Um, I usually have a paper copy backup of my sermon, but I always use an iPad. Uh, that's my generation, but I still like a physical written Bible. Romans 6.16 says, Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you, whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. You're going to serve somebody. And you can't serve God and man. Once again, a binary choice. You can... Let me tread carefully here. You can give God lip service, and you can say you're serving Him and be serving the world. I'm not saying you are not a Christian. I'm not saying you are not saved. But I'm saying that you are not serving God. It's either all God or it's something else. Right. Once again, not saying that a person who's not giving God their full devotion is not a Christian, not saved, not going to go to heaven. Not what I'm saying at all. Just saying that you can't actually be serving God if you're serving anything else. Being a good person without serving Jesus 
is serving sin, no matter how good you are. Keeping the Old Testament law and rejecting Jesus is serving sin. Any other religion should go without saying, serving sin. Ephesians 2.8 says, You are saved by grace through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a free gift of God. Uh, another translation, which honestly I forgot where I got this from, uh, said, God saved you by His grace when you believed. You can't take any credit for this. It is not a gift from God. Uh, salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it. You're not saved because you did good things. I've said that, and I've said that, and I've said that in prior messages, but it bears repeating because somebody needs to hear it, either here or online. can't be good enough. You aren't saved because you don't sin, and you're not, not saved if you do sin. We can't avoid sin enough to save ourselves, and you can't sin enough to invalidate your salvation. And that's good news to me anyways. A person is saved by accepting Jesus, and that's it. A person goes to hell because they reject Jesus, and that's it. There's this, this popular notion that God sends good people to heaven and bad people to hell. No. God sends people who reject His Son to hell. That's it. That's the only reason. So the sin issue. Is sin an issue? Uh, some people would take issue with what I've already said, um, and, and some people take issue also with the grace message. They see the grace message as a license to sin, as permission to sin, as I alluded to earlier on. You know, they see it as if I'm saved because of Jesus and that's all, and He already forgave all of my past, present, and future sins, and then I can do what I want to do, when I want to do it, how I want to do it, all that good stuff. At the opposite side, there are Christians who do not believe that God's grace is enough, and there's no other way to say it. They believe that even though as a Christian, if you commit sins, you can still be sent to hell because it, you messed up. It's not the way it works. And like many things in life, there is a happy, medium, middle ground. A middle-of-the-road approach that makes the most sense. I may, yeah. Uh, what time are we looking at? Nope, we'll make the Chiefs game. If I can have the musicians go ahead and come up, I'm just kidding. We are going to start wrapping it up here. You know, lately, what started all this when I started kind of developing the sermon idea for the youth is they've been asking lots of very specific questions. Is this a sin? Is this a sin? If somebody does this, will they go to hell? Will God forgive me that I have done this? Will God forgive me that I've done that? Uh, and I know from what I have read, I don't know personally, but from what I have read, many youth pastors in this country would brush those issues off. They would not answer those questions, or they would answer it with, sin doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because Jesus already took care of it. Um, and that's partially true. Um, Jesus did take care of it, but to say that it doesn't matter doesn't jive with how Jesus and the disciples lived their lives. It doesn't go with the example that we saw. Jesus healed people and said, go and sin no more. Stop sinning. I, uh, I'll share this with you, a little funny thing. I sent it to Pastor earlier this week. I came across, uh, there was somebody speaking like up on a, on a platform, and they had the PowerPoint screen behind them, and it said, a summary of the epistles of Paul. And it was, Grace, I pray for you all the time. Forget, I don't want to mess this up for you. Um, doggone it. That's what happens when I try and do something from memory. <sighs> I started, I can't let it go. Grace, I pray for you all the time. Uh, stick to the gospel, which I gave to you. For the love of all that is holy, stop doing stupid stuff. <laughs> oh, Timothy says hi. Signed, Paul. Really, that sums it up. We do stupid stuff. 
and and there's nowhere in the New Testament that we're told to do stupid stuff. It was Scripture's purpose is to correct and to rebuke. If there's if there's no wrong, then we don't need rebuked. We don't need corrected. But there is. Go and sin no more. Jesus' message always: repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. Change your ways. Sin does matter. There is only one unforgivable sin. That is the rejection of Jesus and blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. No other sin will send you to hell. But sinning in your life can and will bring hell directly to your life here on earth. Uh, sin can result in jail. Sin can result in disease. Sin will bring you stress. And sin will limit how God can work on your life and in your life. Yeah, we can limit God. That's a weird thought, isn't it? Now... Am I saying that we have the ultimate authority? No. But how God has chosen to work, He has chosen to cooperate and expects our cooperation in turn. He's not going to override us most of the time. So we can limit His, His actions in our life by the way that we choose to live. It is important. So when the kids ask me questions about something is a sin or not, it's a valid question. It's something that we need to talk about. We need to examine our behavior. We need to examine the things we think about, the things that we watch, the things that we listen to, the things that we do. Are they sinful? Or are they not sinful? Um, but our, our motivations in this examination are incredibly important. Are we asking these questions because we think we have to walk like a tightrope with God, where if I step off, God is going to smite me? Like, that is not the type of relationship that we are to have with our Father. Absolutely not. Um, are we asking these questions to see what we can get away with? Well, that's obviously a problem also. Uh, we should, is God going to be mad if I do this? Can I get away with this? Well, the answer probably is already no. If you think God might be upset about it, God's probably going to be upset about it. Are we asking these questions so we can make our decisions and our life pleasing to God? And that should be the motivation. Not avoiding trouble, but seeking to please our Father. I, I don't want to sin. I don't want the harmful effects of it in my life, but more so, I don't want to sin because it hurts our Father. He paid such a price for us by sending His Son here. I don't want to hurt Him. If I sin, does Jesus have to climb back up on the cross? Absolutely not. But I don't want to harm that relationship. I don't want to cause hurt. I don't want to cause pain. And that should be our motivation. Not to manipulate Him, not to get something from Him, but to please Him because I love Him. Everybody sins. Obviously, people who don't believe in Jesus, they sin. Um, but as Christians, we sin and we do it all the time. If you sped here on the way to church, you, you sinned. You probably sin on the way home too. And that's just how it is. And if you watch the Chiefs game, depending on who you want to win, you may or may not have sinful thoughts in your head. <laughs> the Bible says anything that doesn't, isn't done in faith is sin. It says that if you don't think you sin, you've deceived yourself because you sin. But the Apostle John, after writing that, also said, confess our sins and He is faithful to forgive us. Jesus knows who we are. He knows that we make mistakes. And He wants us to live for Him. Or more accurately, He wants to live through us so that when people encounter us, they are encountering Jesus. Just as Adam and Eve got to in the garden, we now carry the presence of God with us. He's not mad at us. God's not upset with you when you mess up. He doesn't want you to mess up. He wants to make things right, but He's not mad. He's not looking for a reason to spite you. He's not there with a big stick waiting to spank you. Uh, he's ready to forgive you. And, and realistically, He's already forgiven you. Because he did that when Jesus died on the cross. But it's still nice to hear it from you. Father, forgive me.
right? There's something that, that some people call sin consciousness. We get tied up about thinking about sin, and that's all that we think about. And that's not what I've been encouraging the youth to think about, and that's not what I want you guys to think about either. I don't want you walking out of here, oh, i got to watch my sin now. No, you're saved. You're saved. It's eternally done. You're, you're secure. Uh, we need to think about how Jesus already defeated sin and how we are made righteous. You know, we are justified. Pastor says it all the time, just as if I'd never sinned. To be made righteousness. You have the righteousness of Christ on you. The righteous means to be made right with God. You're right with the Father because of what Jesus did, irrespective of what you continue to do, have done, etc. Aside from you outright rejecting Jesus, you're good to go. But we still need to think about it, right? So it's a, it is kind of a tightrope, not because we're afraid of God or afraid of being smited, but we need to have that fear and trembling that I talked about earlier. We, we are serving a holy God, and just because we have grace doesn't mean that we should live however we want to. In Romans chapter 7, Paul writes about how if a woman gets married, she's bound to her husband. But if the husband dies, she can remarry without committing adultery. And then he goes on to say about how if we have been married to Christ, and then we go and try and, and serve the law, we are committing adultery on our, our Jesus. Right? We can't serve God and the law. We can't serve God and anybody else. So I'm not encouraging you to try and live a works righteousness law mindset. I don't want you being focused on the sin. Um, we're united with Jesus. If we try and fulfill the law as ourselves, we're committing spiritual adultery. Yes, you should keep the law. Yes, you shouldn't murder. You shouldn't steal. You shouldn't kill. All those things are, are good. You shouldn't lie. Um, but the motive, not law keeping to be good, law keeping please my Father. Right? Romans 7, 6 says, But now we have been released from the law, for we died to it and are no longer captive to its power. Now we can serve God, not in the old way of obeying the letter of the law, but in the new way of living in the Spirit. If you are walking in love, Jesus said you'll fulfill the law. Right? So you don't have to focus on, I, I can't do this, I have to do this. Walk in love, and you'll do all those things pretty much on autopilot. Now, walking in love doesn't come by autopilot. You've got to work on that one. But if you're walking in love, you'll take care of everything else. Scripture tells us if we walk in the Spirit, we will not fulfill the desires of our flesh. If we seek God with all of our hearts, if we seek to love Him and to love people as He's told us to, then we'll be living in a way that is pleasing to Him. We need to realize that sin is still sin. It never went away, but Jesus died for those sins. We are justified, as I said, justified never sin. We are righteous. We are made right with God because of what Jesus did. And the final good news of all this is Romans 8.1. It says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So I've spent the last 30, 40 minutes talking to you about sin. We need to be conscious of it. We need to, to, to avoid it. We need to repent of it. We need to live for Jesus. But in the end, we are not condemned. Already done. Already taken care of. The, the slate has been wiped clean. And as I've said several times, that's good news. Because I mess up. I think everyone messes up. But we are not condemned for it. We are not found guilty for it. Paul said to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. We need to fear the Lord and love the Lord. And understand that He is our Father, but He is also a very holy God. And we get to serve Him as both ways, Father and Holy God. If you're at home watching this, or if you're here by chance, and you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I want to encourage you right now.
to take this opportunity to do that because sin is real and if you continue to sin without accepting Jesus as your Lord and Savior if you don't repent and change your ways to, to turn the way you're going and seek him there will be a day of final judgment and the wages of sin is death but Jesus has already paid for those sins and all he needs you to do is to make him Lord and Savior of your life and it's as simple as that you have a conversation with your father in heaven and you say Lord forgive me for what I've done I want you in my life I want you to be my Lord and Savior I want to turn my life around and follow what you have for me and that's all there is to it and, and at that moment you're changed it says you're made a new creature and all of your sins are forgiven away we hope this message has been a great blessing to you and has helped build your faith in Jesus we encourage you to visit our app Independence Christian Center on your cell phone available from the Apple App Store or Android Google Play you can also find us on Apple TV Roku Amazon, YouTube, and Facebook, again, under Independence Christian Center, or at our website, iccfamily, all one word, dot O-R-G, iccfamily.org. Our heart's desire here is to labor with the Lord in building His body. Until next time, may God's very best be yours.